so this is part of my very long project of uh, disabusing people of uh, their stereotyped views of Kant. I'm not a Kant scholar, I should say, but I do share the frustrations of Kant scholars um, over the very common misreadings of Kant on all sorts of things. Um, so I'm mainly going to be relying on uh, the doctrine of virtue, which is part of the metaphysics of morals. Uh, don't leave home without it. And I think he's actually got quite an interesting view, both on conscience and on conscientious objection um, that's relevant to the kinds of things we're thinking about on this ground. So I'm going to begin with some cases, just a couple of cases of uh, conscientious action, I suppose. Uh, then think about uh, what conscience is, what are the standard ways of divide, dividing it up. Kant's account of conscience, moral feeling and moral agency, his distinction between artificial conscience and reflective conscience, and then what he has to say in his essay on enlightenment about conscience and professional roles. And then I might, uh, if there's time, just consider what protection <coughs> the free exercise of conscience requires. Okay, so here are some acts of conscience and uh, perhaps their costs. Um, Leslie Cannold, a bioethicist, an Australian bioethicist uh, who's thought about the issue of uh, conscientious, conscientious refusal of service in the medical context has uh, a whole heap of cases uh, where conscientious refusal has had pretty devastating effects on the women who um, had services refused to them. Uh, obviously there are famous cases where women have died when they haven't been able to get an abortion because there was still a fetal heartbeat. Um, here's a different kind of case. Carla sought an abortion of early pregnancy. Um, it required the removal of a large uterine mass. The doctor refused to perform the procedure because of risks to the pregnancy. Uh, apparently the risks to Carla were of no interest to him. Forced to find another provider, the delay cost Carla her uterus and $40,000 in medical bills. Um, the costs to the medical practitioners in these <coughs> cases is usually zero. The costs to the women can be very, very high. Um, I think Kim, her name, her last name escapes me, but you all know the case, the US, the county clerk who refused to issue marriage licences to gay couples um, in defiance of the law. Uh, certainly from my Facebook feed, lots of people who disagreed with her view about gay marriage nevertheless admired her um, dedication to the views that she believed in, her conscientious refusal and the fact that uh, she was willing to pay a price for her conscience. Um, and I think she lost her job or something. Um, and then these are Australian doctors and health workers standing outside the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, Australia has a policy of mandatory detention of asylum seekers. They are locked up in offshore islands in very unpleasant places and basically tortured. Um, the medical practitioners have uh, being placed in very difficult positions, uh, both in working in detention centres and in various circumstances trying to deliver medical care to detainees. Uh, these doctors have been refusing to discharge children back into detention, um, which of course the government wishes them to do. So the most common way of uh, 
most common issue that arises in the healthcare settings is refusal of service. Uh, and I guess I'm going to be focusing really on refusal of service <coughs> by professionals on private moral grounds, on the grounds of their private morality. Um, and this happens regularly in the medical profession. It's sometimes publicised and it's sometimes not because, uh, in fact, we just don't know how often it occurs because, of course, uh, within a private medical consultation, a practitioner might uh, refuse a service, refuse to inform patients of the treatment that are available, and this never becomes visible within the profession. So it's sometimes publicised, it's sometimes not. But conscientious refusal uh, is not, so far as I know, uh, not in Australia, not in the US, I'm not really sure what the position here is, it's not subject to professional sanction. Um, and I guess one question is, what is sacrosanct about conscience as grounds for refusal of service? And Julian was talking about that yesterday. Okay, so moving on to theories of conscience and um, Alan Wood, in a recent paper on Count on Conscience, um, divides them roughly into three. There's moral knowledge theories that we heard about yesterday, conscience as a source of moral knowledge. Um, for example, it might be seen as the voice of God within. Conscience is telling you what is right and what is wrong, and it's supposedly authoritative. Um, then there's moral motivation theories of conscience, uh, and they're pretty familiar too, because we often think about the prickings and proddings of conscience. Conscience is that thing that makes us feel uncomfortable about what we propose to do, and maybe urges us to take another look <coughs> at it, or to refrain from doing that thing. And then there's reflection theories, or critical conscience theories. Um, this might be taken as uh, the prioritising of moral considerations in reflection, uh, or it might, be, it might be thought about as reasoned moral judgement. And of course these theories are not mutually exclusive. You might hold all of them. You might hold that, you know, that they deliver moral knowledge, they prompt moral reflection, they motivate uh, moral action. So what's Kant's account? And we heard a little bit about Kant's account yesterday, but um, I'm going to challenge what we heard there. <coughs> so first of all, I think, and this may come as a surprise to many people, uh, first I think we need to have a look at the role of feeling in Kantian moral agency. And I want to suggest to you that the role of moral feeling is absolutely critical for Kant. If you don't have moral feeling, you are not a moral agent. It's an essential constitutive condition of moral agency. So Kant says this in the lectures on ethics. Moral feeling is the capacity to be affected by a moral judgment. My understanding may judge that an action is morally good, but it need not follow that I shall do that action which I judge to be morally good. From understanding to performance is still a far cry. If this judgment were to move me to do the deed, it would be moral feeling. So what are these moral feelings? Kant thinks that there are certain moral endowments that we have no duty to acquire and that no moral agent lacks. And these are moral feeling, conscience, love of one's neighbour and respect for oneself. They lie at the basis of morality as subjective conditions of receptiveness to the concept of duty. 
Moral feeling is the way duty gets a grip on us. We have to be so constituted as to respond to the idea of our duty and that response is on the side of feeling. So Kant says, any consciousness of obligation depends upon moral feeling to make us aware of the constraint present in the thought of duty. That's how duty gets its normative force. That's how duty gets its claws into us. <coughs> Without moral feeling, including conscience, duty couldn't motivate us. And if we can't be constrained by thoughts of duty, then we don't reach a threshold for moral agency. We would be, in Kant's terms, morally dead. That's the term he uses, morally dead. Conscience, then, he says, is not something that can be acquired, and we have no duty to provide ourselves with one. Rather, every man, as a moral being, has a conscience within him originally. So conscience is very, very important. And you can see that Kant subscribes to a moral feeling view of conscience. Conscience is a very important aspect of moral motivation. But conscience does not deliver any moral knowledge. That's not the role of conscience. It's not the role of moral feeling in general. That's not what it does. We no more have a special sense for what is morally good and evil than for truth. And I think that this denial becomes very important when we get to the issue of conscientious objection and how Kant handles that notion. However, I guess despite this denial that conscience delivers knowledge, Kant seems to say that we're off the hook morally speaking, so long as we act with a clear conscience. He says, if someone is aware that he's acted in accordance with his conscience, then as far as guilt or innocence is concerned, nothing more can be required of him. So, you know, that sounds like conscience is king. That sounds like conscience has this special kind of status. Uh, certainly, <coughs> it sounds like it has the special status that conscientious objectors um, claim for themselves, you know, I have to act in accordance with my conscience and so on and so forth. But there's a real sting in the tail here because Kant goes on to say, it is incumbent upon him only to enlighten his understanding in the matter of what is or is not his duty. And that only, it's not really only, it's in fact incredibly important. Um, so let's think about what conscience requires for Kant, what you have to do when you feel those prickings and proddings of conscience. He says that conscience is practical reason holding man's duty before him for his acquittal or condemnation. And he has a clear picture that there is, in a sense, <coughs> three individuals inside of us. Uh, once practical reason holds our duty before us for our acquittal or condemnation. So there is the internal court, there's the prosecutor, the defence and the judge who has to decide the issue. <coughs> and Wood says of this, he says, conscience is always a reflection on one's action in which the issue, as in a criminal court, is guilt or innocence. Both the accuser and the defender within us must be seen as articulating their arguments on explicit grounds. So the feeling isn't enough. The feeling doesn't decide the issue. The feeling just gets you into court, okay? 
And then you have to have reasons for your position for or against the action. So they have to be seen as articulating their arguments on explicit grounds and the verdict of the judge must equally be a reasoned one. So it seems pretty clear that as well as the moral motivation view of conscience, Kant holds a critical reflection view of conscience. Um, that what is required of us is that we consider the issue impartially and uh, <coughs> thinking about the reasons. And this critical conscience is to be distinguished from artificial conscience. What's artificial conscience? Well, that could be the voice of society, religion, convention. Um, it's bound, it's unfree, it's unenlightened and it's immature. And why is it any of these things? Because you're not thinking for yourself. You're not exercising your own faculties of reason. You're just taking it from someone else. You're binding yourself at another person's world. So he says in the essay on enlightenment, immaturity is the inability to use one's own understanding without the guidance of another. It's so convenient to be immature. If I have a book to have understanding in place of me, a spiritual advisor to have a conscience for me, and so on, I need not make any efforts at all. So it's quite clear that we have a duty to think for ourselves in matters of conscience, <coughs> but Kant recognises that we aren't omniscient. We can get things wrong. And that, I think, as I've said, is going to become very important. Now, it's an interesting question, I think, whether any policy that we might um, come up with on conscientious objection uh, could distinguish between artificial and reflective conscience uh, and whether that would be worth doing because uh, the things that seem to be the sticking points for most people is uh, some sort of intrusion on the other person's integrity and it's not clear to me, uh, even though I think that this distinction between artificial conscience and critical conscience is an important one, it's not clear to me that in terms of what kind of practical effect we give to it, that it would be a particularly useful one, but I think that's something that we can discuss. So I now want to turn to the relationship between conscience and enlightenment. Um, and I want to uh, outline Kant's distinction between the public use of reason and conscience and private use of re reason. And Kant, in his essay on enlightenment, argues that enlightenment depends upon the free use of public reason. On the other hand, he thinks that private use of reason, which he thinks of as the sort of reason that you would exercise in the context of a particular civil post or office uh, that's entrusted of you, may often be quite narrowly restricted. Um, so I think that this relates quite nicely to the things that Julian was saying yesterday about public goods. Um, Kant uh, argues that look, there are, in effect, certain public goods. There are certain requirements for civil society to operate properly. And those requirements mean that people are going to have to do their jobs, OK, and not argue the toss at every at every turn while they're doing their jobs. So he says we require a certain mechanism whereby some members of the Commonwealth must behave purely passively so that they may be employed by the government for public ends. 
And he has a number of examples that he talks about. Um, he gives the example of the military. He thinks that soldiers have to obey orders. Um, and it's not their role as soldiers to argue strategy with their superiors uh, when they're given orders. Uh, that's no way to run a military. Similarly for taxation, he thinks that, look, you've got to pay your tax. And you can't behave in a way that would, in fact, um, inspire other people not to pay their taxes. You can't argue against certain forms of taxation um, in ways that would encourage people to disobey um, the law. Um, and then he talks about the clergy, and this is sort of his most extensive example, where he talks about a clergyman who isn't wholly committed to the doctrines of the current church, has some disagreements, some doctrinal disagreements, and he says, a clergyman is bound to instruct his pupils and congregation in accordance with the doctrines of the church he serves, for he was employed by it on that condition. He is not and cannot be free as a priest. And so this would seem to suggest a hard line on conscientious objection from Kant. Uh, he says that if you can't do your job, you should give it up, okay? But let's have a look at it. However, uh, that doesn't mean that you can't act in accordance with your conscience for Kant, because he thinks that your freedom to argue in the public space about the things that you privately disagree with uh, in the course of your employment must be unlimited. He says, conversely, as a scholar addressing the real public through his writings, the clergyman making public use of his reason enjoys unlimited freedom to use his own reason and speak in his own person. He thinks that people remain free and indeed obligated to argue their views in the public arena as <coughs> scholars, and he's absolutely opposed to any move to restrict such discussions because he thinks we can't achieve enlightenment by binding other people to our views. Why would we not be able to achieve enlightenment? Well, that's because we can be mistaken, okay? That's because the views of one age are probably mistaken, and it's up to the next age, through the free use of reason, to correct those mistakes. He says one age cannot put the next age into a position where it would be impossible for it to extend and correct its knowledge, this would be a crime against human nature whose original destiny lies precisely in such progress. So knowledge is an achievement. It's not given by conscience. It's not given by tradition. And all of our views are going to be subject to revision in the light of reason and presumably any new information that arises. OK. so. There's a distinction in Kant between what you're allowed to do uh, in the course of your employment, uh, where you're supposed to be a passive instrument for public ends, and what you're allowed to do um, in the public sphere uh, as a scholar, as a person who's entitled to argue. Um, however, you might think, look, that's not really very satisfactory. Um, the requirement that you check your private conscience in at the door um, when you get to work would seem to be an assault <coughs> on your integrity and your moral autonomy, and Kant's very concerned about moral autonomy, um, you know, in the way that, um, that um, might have been going on in William's famous example of Jim and the job. Uh, but the worry there was that Jim 
uh, in taking a job where he would be required to do things that uh, violated his personal moral standards would lose his integrity. Okay, so I think that there are two kinds of Kantian responses to this sort of worry. Um, <coughs> first, I think in the context of the most common kinds of religiously based refusal of service, um, for example in the areas of abortion and contraception, the objector might well not count as morally autonomous in Kantian terms anyway. And second, I think that we have, come, have to come back to this point that conscience isn't a source of moral knowledge. In most cases where there's disagreement, I reckon that Kant thinks the conscientious objector should recognise that she could be wrong. Okay, so the first objection. I think it seems that on Kant's view, the conscientious objector who cites religious authority as the reason for their objection, I can't do this, my religion forbids it, my religion says it's wrong. Um, that person is sort of making a mistake. They've got things, um, you know, the wrong way round. Uh, they're active where they should be passive, and they're passive where they should be active. So they're not making free use of their reason to the extent that what they're doing is passively accepting religious doctrine without exposing it to the rigours of reason. Their conscience is, in Kant's term, artificial, and they remain unenlightened. But, on the other hand, they're active in what Kant calls private roles, where he thinks they should be uh, passive instruments of the state in order to achieve public goods. Um, they're imposing their views on people who are entitled to expect something else in this context. And if this ran unchecked, the valuable social institution of which their employment is a part would be unable to serve its role. So Tim Dare, in a recent book on um, professional morality, role morality for lawyers, argues that role occupants are not entitled to appeal to ordinary morality from within their roles. Rather, what you are doing within the role um, is that you're limited to the moral principles and resources internal to the role. So to the extent, for example, that health professionals um, don't like a procedure that they might be called upon to uh, perform, their objections to it have to be based, if they're to be, if they're to be legitimate, have to be based on the moral principles and resources internal to the role. So the, the benefit of the patient, the welfare of the patient, the health of the patient, uh, those are the sorts of things that they can draw on. They can draw upon the goals of medicine, but they can't draw upon um, things that are irrelevant, considerations that are irrelevant to the goals of medicine when they're objecting to something that's going on within the medical context. So that's, that's Dare's idea. And he, he says of lawyers, and I expect he would say the same of doctors, that the good lawyer is bound by the rules governing professional practice, even in cases where he or she conscientiously disagrees. And her recourse, according to Dare, uh, is the same as Kant's. It's to advocate for reform of the rules, changes in the institutional framework so as not to unilaterally disadvantage clients who rely on her to act in their legal interests. So you go to your lawyer, you're expecting a certain service. Um, if the lawyer acts on their private, co private conscience to unilaterally um, deny you your legal rights, you have just cause for, for complaint. Uh, okay. Now, I think that 
one of the ways that Kant handles this, uh, the where your private con your 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 conscience is in effect in conflict with your role requirements, is to suggest um, that there can be issues of moral uncertainty here. So he thinks about the clergyman who has some disagreements of doctrine with the teachings of the church, and he says, well, you know, you present it in a certain manner. The clergyman, what he teaches in pursuit of his duties is presented by him as something which our church teaches. Our church teaches this, it says this, you know, the doctrine says this, um, and he's employed to expound it in the prescribed manner. He extracts as much practical value as possible for his congregation from precepts to which he would not himself subscribe with full conviction, but which he can nevertheless undertake to expound since it's not wholly impossible that they may contain truth. So he seems to be suggesting that where there are these conflicts, we should approach them with a certain degree of epistemic humility. We, we might be the ones who are wrong here. So with that in mind, let's just briefly turn to what role morality in the health context might require. Uh, and I'm going to suggest, well, there's, I mean, there's obviously a lot of things, but for the purposes of this um, discussion, just focus on beneficence, which is a focus on medical interests of the patient. And secondly, a respect for patient autonomy. And it does seem to me that conscientious refusal by doctors, not always, but at least in certain prominent cases, jeopardises both of these requirements, as can be seen in some of those cases of abortion refusal, mm -hmm. where both the medical interests of the patient and their autonomy were seriously compromised. So it seems to me that many medical cases are clear cases of the exercise of private morality and conscience in a professional context and where there's no broad consensus on the moral question. Reasonable people do disagree on the issues of abortion, contraception, um, addiction and so forth. And where doctors and patients disagree, the conscientious objector imposes their conscience on the patient. And I think that this is very worrying given the imbalance of power in the doctor-patient relationship. I think it's a violation of the principle of respect for patient autonomy that um, is part, I take it, of the role morality of the doctor. And I'm wondering whether this is in fact the difference between those cases where we intuitively cheer for conscience and those where we don't. So if you think about the cases that I began with, I think, you know, there are cases where we're kind of, oh, you know, the doctor who cost the patient her uterus and a huge sum of money, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of anti-conscience there. But, you know, the doctors who are refusing to discharge children back into detention, you know, I want to cheer for those guys. Um, so is it just that we like conscience where we agree with a person's conscience and we're anti-giving conscience any special uh, status in those cases where we don't disagree? I think that goes on a lot and that's what worries me about this whole area of conscientious objection. But if we try to get a more principled distinction, uh, the doctors in the detention cases are governed by role morality 
um, their professional role morality, which is that they have to have a concern for the health of their patients and they know what is going to happen to young children discharged back into the environment, the terrible environment of detention, that their health interests are going to be gravely compromised in, in those circumstances. And so you could say they're acting sort of within a professional role morality. Um, in, in the other case, uh, it's not so clear. Okay. But surely, you might say, and I'd agree, what if there is no uncertainty? You know, there are cases where uh, people are asked within their profession to do things which just seem to be under any um, reading wrong. So, and that might include some of the things that health professionals are asked to do in detention centres, um, doctors under the Nazi regime, and in those kinds of cases, it looks as though they can't carry out their role responsibilities, that what they're asked to do is, is in direct conflict with those role responsibilities, um, with their sort of professional role responsibilities. Um, well, Kant thinks that if a <coughs> clergyman thought he could find anything opposed to the essence of religion in the doctrines he's obliged to teach, he would not be able to carry on his duties in good conscience and he should resign. So you should get out in those circumstances. So I might just skip that. Um, so that's, that's really the, um, the basic outline of Kant's views. Um, and I'm thinking about what might be the way forward. I don't think that conscientious objection should be allowed to sort of run unchecked in the medical field. Um, and I think that what is worrying about uh, many of these cases, particularly cases where patients end up damaged, is that there's no cost on the objector, you know? And I guess I think with Kant that if your conscience is really so important to you that you ought to be prepared to pay a price for your conscience. It shouldn't just be the patient that bears the cost of your conscience, your conscience, you know, your precious conscience, as opposed perhaps sometimes to their health and well-being, and as opposed to their conscience too. Um, and I think that we should we should have a way of treating conscientious objection uh, like civil <coughs> disobedience. So, if we look at a Rawlsian account of civil disobedience. Um, civil disobedience is a public, non-violent and conscientious breach of the law, or we might say the rules, um, undertaken with the aim of bringing about a change in laws or policies. On this account, the persons who practice civil disobedience are willing to accept the legal consequences of their actions as this shows their fidelity to the rule of law. Now, I think that hidden conscientious objection is anathema. I think that if a doctor has a conscientious objection to a practice and really feels that he can't be wrong about this, he or she can't be wrong about this, and that they can't perform the kinds of prescribed actions, then I think they have to um, take, as it were, a professionally disobedient stance, be quite public about it, argue their case, and accept the consequences of their professional bodies or of the law. That is, they should be prepared to accept a penalty in order to argue their case and push forward this thing. So um, 
that's, I guess, my current thinking about where we should go with conscientious objection, um, which I think is in line with uh, the Kantian view that I've uh, presented here. Thanks. <laughs> okay, we've got a short period of time for questions. <coughs>